Good morning again. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, beginning in verse 11. Paul, as he is writing to this church of believers, um, is uh, probably a bit distracted in his ministry and what he's doing. He's um, a little bit unfocused because people are attacking him, saying, well, what kind of an apostle are you? What authority do you have to do your ministries? And in the midst of that, he's also trying to encourage the believers to keep their focus on, um, on a, a principal part of our calling. And I think no matter what we're doing in life, we can get distracted from our main focus as Christ's ambassador. So let's listen to God's word today. Follow along with me as I read from God's word. In uh, 2 Corinthians 5, for context from verse 11 through uh, 6-2. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord... We persuade others, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. For we are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, but if we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Sorry, all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but live for him who uh, who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these reminders of what uh, it means to be reconciled to you and to share that message with others. May we drink deeply of the grace and the truth of that message this morning. Uh, May your spirit guide uh, your servant's words and guide our minds and hearts as we understand and by your grace apply your word to our daily lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Years ago... I'd like to say it was several lifetimes ago, but I don't think it was that long ago. I was uh, single. As I look back at some pictures, I was actually kind of like thin then and things like that. And uh, I served in Ecuador for two years. 
And I remember being invited even early on in that time to a special 4th of July celebration hosted by the American Embassy there in Ecuador. And I kind of thought that this might be a stuffy event with important people and maybe attitudes to match. Maybe the attitude to match was mine for judging them, I don't know. But um, I was actually surprised by how down to earth they were and how fun it was to meet these people. There were English teachers there and business people, a couple of Peace Corps workers, I think. <clears throat> and as I asked one man what he did, I'll never, remember, I'll never forget his response. He says, the most important thing I do every day is to raise the flag each morning. I thought, to raise the flag each morning? What are you talking about? It's like, are you joking? Well, his name was Mr. Johnson, and he was the Consul General for the United States in Ecuador at that point, the second highest diplomat in Ecuador. And I figured he might talk to me about new trade opportunities or smoothing over some diplomatic relations or maybe some artistic or technical exchange programs he might be working on. But no, he simply talked to me about raising the flag. I could tell that Mr. Johnson loved his country, that he understood what it meant to be an ambassador. He wasn't sent halfway around the world to the southern half of the globe to represent his own perspectives or ideas or values, but those of his country. And to him, those were symbolized in a flag, to bear, to be proud, to bear the message from his homeland. But he also had a kind of a tangible humility to him as well. I think that Mr. Johnson realized that it wasn't really the message. It wasn't the, surely wasn't the messenger that brought authority and power to his message. It was who he represented. He was just the mouthpiece, just the servant. And I think in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul's reminding us a little bit about these same things as we must live as Christ's ambassadors. Where's our authority come? The message is amazing, we'll talk about it, but that's not where the authority is. And it's certainly not the messenger. You know, um, it's a temptation maybe at some missions conferences to say, oh, you know, um, look at Ben Robinson, isn't, Robertson, isn't he cool in the way he's reaching students? Or, you know, um, you know, Preston and Sarah, they're there, they're willing to give their lives in this hard place, or Craig or whatever. No, it's, it's not about the messenger. It's not about the message. Our authority comes from whom we're called to represent that is the authority and our motivation, which we'll talk about a bit more, is, is Christ's love for us. So no matter what's kind of um, either lulling us to sleep these days, if we're a little dazed, or what's distracting us, or what might be pressing in on us, I think that um, we all need to be reminded for time to time that we don't live for ourselves, that we live for Christ who gave himself up for us. We live and we're compelled to serve the one who died on the cross and rose again to reconcile us to God. That's the flag that he's calling us to fly each day. Because Christ's love compels us, we must live as his ambassadors. And um, in this great plan of salvation, God has chosen you and I, if you are in Christ, to be his ambassadors with this message of reconciliation. But you know, before we jump in there, I'd just like to explore our motivation a bit more. Um, what's our, our main motivation for being God's ambassadors? Is it because, um, you know, I don't know, Pastor Dennis or Camper has told you that this is good for you, you know, you're going to grow as a Christian and you do this, or uh, that, you know, Craig and Stacy or Preston and Sarah are going to be upset with you if you don't do this, it's got to be on mission for the Lord, or is it guilt? Is it duty? Is it that need? What is it? What really motivates you if everything else is going wrong in the world? What will you overcome 
any obstacle for, who will you make any sacrifice for? If you think about it, you make, you overcome obstacles, you make ultimate sacrifices for the ones you love, right? For your children, for your parent, for a sibling, for your best friend. You make sacrifices out of love. Love, sacrificial, bold, personal, self-giving, committed, never going to go away kind of love. That's what really fuels us in life. And that's what I think Paul is trying to communicate through the Spirit here. He says in verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us or constrains us or compels us, depending on what translation you use. It's the love of Christ that's that motor. Um, Calvin, I mean, this is Reformation weekend, right? So we can't, we've got to quote somebody from the Reformation era. So Calvin, what did he say? He said, the knowledge of this love ought to constrain our infections, that they may go in no other direction other than that of loving him in return. But, but how do we love Christ? Um, well, Calvin helps us out once again. He says, there's a metaphor implied in the word constrain denoting that it's impossible, but that everyone that truly considers and ponders the wonderful love which Christ has manifested towards us by his death becomes, as it were, bound to him or constrained by the closest tie and devotes himself wholly to his service. So how must we live as Christ's ambassadors? Um, I would say first that we must live because Christ's love compels us, we must serve him. So what is a civil servant? Uh, It's one who acts under the authority and at the behest of another, right? Of those who they represent. And what's required in this service of Christ? Paul mentions here that all have died. So he's, he's calling us to some sort of a death, but what have we died to? Do we die to life? Do we die to like the core, the real part of us? A lot of people think Christianity is like this uh, huge, I don't know, joy sucker that just sucks all life out of everything, right? And um, no, it's, it's not dying to all that is life. It's actually, we're called to die to that which is already death in us. We're called to die to sin, to die to everything that's unpleasing to God, to die to those things that are already sucking life out of us. And by the power of God's life-giving spirit working within us, that might take the shape of dying dozens of deaths every week, Little deaths to our own selfish desires, our own motivations, our own plans and projects so that we might live for something greater. So he's calling us to serve him, dying to ourselves, but also living for him. And that's what um, Paul brings up in the second half of 14 and 15. For we concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So this uh, self-denial, this battling against sin, it's, a, it's not an end in itself, right? It's a means to an end. We die to sin so that we might, on the flip side, live to Christ. And what does it mean to live in Christ's service, at least in this passage? What are we being pointed out, pointed towards here? It comes up again and again and again in verse 18 and 19 and 20 and 6.1. We've got to be this ambassador of reconciliation. And as I think about dying to self and and living for others, uh, I think of a new friend that we've made long distance at this point, I hope up close soon, um, Pastor Hirohashi, or Hirohashi Sensei in in Japanese. I'm going to say Spanish forever, so just 
if I say Spanish, I mean Japanese, and probably not vice versa. So um, Hirohashi Sensei is a dear man who I thought would be kind of like old and daughtery and just kind of like just hanging on. And uh, wow, first time we met him, he's there taking copious notes on his iMac and just staring us in the face and you know listening to us intently, even though I don't think he knew English, but he was hearing the translation. And um, uh, the more I hear about him, the more I, I'm inspired. He's uh, 81 years old, as I think I mentioned earlier. He wants to work until he's 85, if the Lord allows him. And then he would like to be proclaimed a pastor emeritus, if that's okay with everybody else, and, and stay on serving the Lord as long as he can. Pastor Hirohashi was instrumental in planting the church that will be coming alongside to serve 20, 21 years ago, something like that. Um, it started out with just those few people we mentioned before. And this was his third church that the Lord's called him to plant, and he started planting it at the age of 60. So for those of you that are like in that range and thinking, hey, I'm retired, don't mess with me, you know, well, there's other, other patterns of life to consider if the Lord blesses you in that direction. Um, but it hasn't always been easy for him. It's come with sacrifice. Um, he is the only believer in his family, which I think Stacy or I mentioned, and uh, he was disowned by his Buddhist parents as soon as he declared that he was going into the ministry. When he started for seminary, he bought a one-way ticket to Tokyo, has just sort of the change in his pocket, and got there for a six-year program of learning to be a pastor. In his first pastorates, he did that bivocationally, so he had to sell insurance policies and encyclopedias and things like that along the way within that, you know, that high-pressure Japanese situation of work for 60 hours or whatever a week, and then with the breath you have left over, think about serving the church. So um, we don't lift individual people up on a pedestal because it's all the Lord's work, but uh, as we see God's faithfulness working through other servants, we think, wow, uh, that's one way at least that men, women have been called to serve God through some denial of self and a, just a joyful living for God. Um, because Christ's love compels us, so we, we were, as his ambassadors, we're called to serve him, but also we must learn to see things through new eyes. Um, what does Paul say here? He says, from now on, therefore, verse 16, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Well, how did Paul view, I think, I think God's telling us we need to see things through God's eyes from a different perspective, not from the fleshly perspective, not from a worldly perspective, but, but embracing God's perspective. How did Paul initially see Jesus? You always remember? Remember those Bible stories? I mean, he was not excited about Jesus, right? Jesus was the man, an evil man who had come to destroy all that was good and right about Judaism and distract people from the true way of knowing God, right? So he was a man to be persecuted and a man to be silenced, right? And he was viewing him from that fleshly perspective, thinking this is just a Joe Jesus man that's running around Palestine just, just leading astray the faithful of Israel. And then God opened his eyes, literally, right, blinded him and then opened his eyes. And now he understood that this is the son of God. And I'm persecuting God's son. And then life changes. 
And Paul wants to give that new kind of perspective to us, to the believers in Corinth, and to us as well. Just as an example of this, we read scripture and we gloss over it in our minds. We go, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm just going to read the first five verses of 2 Corinthians 5, just before the text we started reading today. Try to wrap your head around what he's saying. What is the tent? What is the building? What is life? What is death? 2 Corinthians 5.1 says this, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the, uh, sorry, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. Um, it's just an example, but what is Paul saying here, telling the Corinthian believers, telling us, he's saying, you know that thing you call life, that you get up, you have your cereal in the morning, you go to work, you start your studies, you start your day, that thing you call life, that's a tent. Right? And that body that you take care of and that you get doctor's appointments for and you try to keep COVID from getting you sick, that thing is a tent. right? The building, the lasting thing is eternal and you're going to get that in the future. Now I'm not minimizing this life we have here. God, we're body and soul, we're one and God redeems us as whole people. I'm not saying that, but what I'm saying is the perspective needs to be turned right side up, Right? We think this is real and that's kind of fake or, you know, never, never land or something. It's the opposite. And this is death from the moment we're born, we're dying, right? And the body is just on a trajectory towards physical death. Right? But he's saying it wants to be swallowed up by life. So that is sort of this new perspective. It, it reminds me of a young woman, a um, couple that's in our, uh, one of our home groups, one of our home Bible studies in Chile. Her name is Dani or Daniela. She is a social worker. She works every day in a hospital. She was there in the hospital all through COVID. Um, she helps orient older people to, you know, their health problems and their life problems and helps them through that, coordinating their care from a social worker's perspective. And uh, she got COVID really bad in the early months of COVID. Before it was like even cool to have COVID. I mean, when you were, no, it's never cool. But it was like in those months where people were like targeting people on Google Maps, like, okay, don't go in that neighborhood because there's a person with COVID over there, you know, and they, they were literally doing that in Chile. And so they didn't want to tell anybody she even had it. And so she's at home and her husband's caring for her and she's in bed and she can't even go up and down stairs because she can't breathe. And um, she gets better. And she's in our Bible study a couple of months later, early in the pandemic, and she's saying, you know, guys, she's telling the whole Bible, says, like, I'm not sure I'm ready for the pandemic to be over yet. And we're like, okay, Danny, why? She's like, well, I just think God's trying to teach me something, and I don't think I've figured it out yet. And I'm like, okay, well, can you hurry up and learn the lesson? Because the rest of us would like the pandemic to be over, you know, <laughs> but not... Um, you know, not to make light of it, I loved her perspective. There was something more important to her than getting better or being safe. It's like, God, if you're doing this in the world, there is something I'm supposed to be learning from it. If I got sick for months and months and months, so I couldn't even get up and down my stairs, then there's probably something you were trying to wake me up for and something that you want me to learn. 
And so I think that kind of perspective of learning to see the world through new eyes is something we need to do as Christ's ambassador. As I think about how does that apply to us, um, our vision affects what's our emphasis in life, affects our values and our motivations, right? And so we could think about it this way. If people come up to me, Craig, or come up to you and say, you know, it's like, what flag do they see us flying? What do we talk about? What are we concerned about? What flag do we raise? What banner do we wear? Is it about a certain kind of education or a healthy lifestyle or our favorite sports team or pursuing professional excellence or being wise with our money or thinking that this or that political cause or social cause is the, is the panacea that's going to get us out of a certain quagmire? All those things, hear me, they could have their place in a Christian's life, but they can't have the central place. It can't be the flag that we hoist up the flagpole every morning. Our banner is the Lord, and we need his perspective, and we need to see with new eyes so that we keep that clear. Because Christ's love compels us, we're not only to be his servants, we're not only to try to see through his eyes, but we must proclaim his message. And I want to just slow things down a little bit here and ask three questions about that. First of all, what is the message that we're supposed to proclaim? And you're like, duh, I know that. Jesus saves. I went to Sunday school. Well, Paul takes some time to talk about it. And, and so I want to just talk about it a little bit too. Let's read again. Um, verses 18 to 20, and try to listen for how does Paul describe this message that his ambassadors, that Christ's ambassadors are to proclaim. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Okay, so it's pretty clear, right? If you're a professor, well, you marry students, professor asks, well, what's this passage about? It's like, well, reconciliation come up five times. That's probably the theme of the passage. Good. But what is reconciliation really? What is it? Um, you know, it's not taking your receipts at the end of the month and the, and the, you know, the checkbook and the bank statement and getting them to match. I'm not sure if anybody does that anymore. I'm not sure I do. But it's not that, okay? And it's not, um, it's not, you know, I've offended you and you've offended me and we've been in this, you know, little mini simmering conflict for a year. Maybe we should get together and talk it through and I'll admit how I'm wrong and you admit how you're wrong and maybe by God's grace we'll get this worked out. That's getting closer, but that's not really it either, is it? Why? Because in that situation, each side has been wrong, and each side needs to extend grace. And uh, in our situation, God's not done anything wrong. He's 100% in the right. 100% of the problem lies with me, and interestingly, 100% of the solution lies with God. I can't, I can't solve this problem on my own. I, I'm incapable of bringing myself one millimeter closer to God. I can't reconcile myself to God. You can't reconcile yourself to God. So that's why in love, out of his pure love and choice, God came close to us. He took the initiative. He's the source and the goal of that reconciliation. And so we get a second clue of what this is all about in verse 19 when he says not counting their sins or their trespasses against them. 
That's the problem, right? It's my ego, it's my lack of love, it's my rebellion, it's my impurity. Um, how can a loving God reconcile with a rebellious person, a dirty person like me? And that was Peter's problem in the boat, right? Do you remember that story? Peter is there, great catch of fish. Jesus was with him in the boat. He was using it as pulpit, his you know, impromptu pulpit for the day. And after this miraculous catch, Peter doesn't extend his business card and say, I'm Peter, and I would love to be a business partner with you. It sounds like you know something about caching fish, and I do too, so we could really do this together. No, he says, get away from me. He's trying to send away Christ because he realizes how sinful he is and the two aren't compatible. And Isaiah remembers that same thing, right? In his vision, when he sees God in all of his holiness, what does he say? Woe is me, I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips and live in, a, in among a people of unclean lips. So we see the problem, but, but how does this work? How does God fill that infinite gap between us? Right? Why am I going over this? I'm going over this because it's in the scripture, but because we need to hear it every day. And sometimes like, I don't know how to share Christ with my neighbor. I, I don't get the gospel. Sometimes we get it wrong. So let's look at it. What does it say? In verse 21, I don't think God could get the mechanics of our salvation in, in fewer words. It's, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. What's, what's he saying there? He's saying that Christ, the only sinless one, him who knew no sin, became sin, took on sin for us, right? He who knew no sin became sin for us, treated Christ as sin. All of his punishment, all the punishment and guilt that should have been mine is on him, right? So that in him, those of us that are joined to him in faith, in him, we don't go to God on our merits, but we go to him on his pure grace, right? Every, everything about Christ's perfect obedience, perfect record and sacrifice, that gets placed on my life. Not that I become perfect, that will maybe, that will happen one day in glory, united to Christ, but that won't happen today. I don't become righteous, but I become counted as righteous. So I get his whole record counted to me on my behalf, and he's making me a bit more like him each day. So then this big exchange... Our debt gets canceled, gets paid in full, and everything given to us. It's a, it's, a, it's a putting off of everything that keeps me from God and a putting on of everything that makes me acceptable to God, and that comes to me by grace. It's this huge exchange. That's what's happening. I think if in my heart and in America, if there's something that I might leave out of the gospel or tend to downplay, it's that sin side. It's easy to talk about grace and God loves you and God has a plan for your life. It's harder to say, at root, I'm a selfish person and I'm a rebel and even one sin separates me infinitely from God if it wasn't for his moving me close to him. Um, how do we proclaim this message though? I'd like to look at just some things that would make this real practical. How are they coming? In verse 20, he says, Therefore we're, we are ambassadors for Christ, making his appeal through us. God is making his appeal through us. And we implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's pretty authoritative, right? It's like, hi, pleased to meet you today. I'm an ambassador for Christ. You know, I've got something, a message for you, right? That's, um, if you believe what that person's telling you, that's heavy duty. That's the God of the universe has a message for me, and it's coming through the Bible, through a person, through his spirit. 
Um, but we come with authority in Christ's name, not by our intelligence, not by our history. On a day like today, we can say not by our good theology. We're reformed Christians, and that's what's authoritative about this message. No, it's Christ. Why should you listen? It's not just true for me. It's true, true. It's God's authority. This, will be, this was true before you were born, during your whole life, and after you die. This is truth. But we don't just come with the authority of God. We come with grace, with the words, with an attitude, the gospel in word and deed. It's unmerited favor that we've received. Remember, he includes himself. Paul includes himself in this in verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us. Us. Paul, you, I, we all need this reconciliation. This is grace given to us, and it needs to come. Therefore, I beseech you, I urge you. Uh, God could command us to believe in him. God could make, but he doesn't. He, he draws us in love to him, beseeches us in grace, and we need to do the other, and, and our lives need to reflect that. I, I have heard some people, heard people give chalk talks or other things, and like, God loves you! I'm like, whoa, you know, um, how about a little grace with the message, you know? So our lives and how we forgive and how we live and our words and our deeds, they've got to reflect the message of authority, but a message of grace, because it's God's grace. There is urgency, however. Did you notice there in, in, in uh, 6.2, it says, for he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. This is a message for today. It's not optional. You shouldn't presume that you have another day. You shouldn't presume I'll figure that out next week or next month. If you're hearing this message, it's for today. Yet I would say, as a parenthesis, um, it is urgent. It's not optional. But it's not necessarily to be rushed Everything happens in God's time, in God's way, right? God is, has the strategies of a whole universe at his disposal. Maybe think, maybe some of you came to Christ instantaneously through a conversation or through reading scriptures or who knows, I know people overseas through a dream. Okay, fine. But most of us didn't come to know Christ that way. How long did it take Christ teaching you truth, calling you in love to himself for you to respond? For some of us, we maybe have been praying for ourselves, our spouse, family members, kids for years or half a lifetime, or maybe we're still praying in that direction. God uh, might take, it might be a generational thing. It's something I'm coming to appreciate. We're coming to appreciate as we think about Japan. Our team's talking about we want to reach the children because we need pastors in about 30 years. And uh, they're not going to come from anywhere else. They're going to come from the church. So um, we need to think long-term as well. There's also, we speak with authority, we speak with grace, we speak with urgency, but perhaps not rushed in a strategic, thoughtful way. But this message as ambassadors, we have to be prepared for a certain amount of sacrifice. It's not something that's popular. I don't like to hear that. Um, but it's a part and parcel of the gospel no matter where you are. Uh, there's going to be some sacrifice in being an ambassador for Christ. Paul puts it this way, if you have your Bibles open or you can just listen and hear as we just go quickly through his uh, litany there in um, 2 Corinthians 6, 3 and following. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no uh, fault may be found with our ministry. 
But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness in the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we're treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet are well known, as dying and yet behold we live, as punished yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. There's a sacrifice to the gospel. We need to be prepared for that. I think that would be evident. Maybe it's already evident in your lives. It's evident in many of the stories I'm hearing from Japan. So we know that uh, what we must proclaim, this gospel of reconciliation, this great exchange, um, we, um, we know that we need to proclaim it with authority and grace and urgency and be willing to sacrifice. But, but where do we proclaim it? What's the context for this? I would submit that it's both near and far. And that's not just because I'm a foreign missionary and that's my gig. Um, but I really think it is. And maybe I need to grow in the near category but here, you might be tempted to say, well, this is just a message, Craig, about evangelism. This is a message about church planting, and so it is. But what's the context? Who's Paul talking to? The Corinthian church. And where is the Corinthian church? Well, it's in Corinth, which is a Greek-speaking place. Paul, although he speaks fluent Greek, did not grow up speaking Greek. He grew up on another continent. So Paul is a foreign missionary at this point cross-cultural missionary. And he's using an example from the Old Testament that points us to the wider picture that, that God has in his great plan, his mission, his mission of reconciliation, right? In the favorable time I listened to you, in the day of salvation I have helped you. He's quoting from where? From Isaiah 49, verses that might ring in your ears. The first verse of that passage says, listen to me, O coastlands, or you could translate it islands. And give attention, you peoples from afar. You could translate that nations. Right? As he goes down, he says, um, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right hand is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. Verse 6, he says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And he talks about kings bowing before them. And one verse later, what he quotes in our passage Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you, in a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out. Um, this has been God's plan to be a blessing to the nations from the days of the covenant with Abraham. We hear this, we hear it repeated in Acts. I will make you my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So both near and far. How do we take this message near and far? It takes a team. I would say a church. This church, God's Church Universal is our team, right? 
We need people that are called to pray and to send and to go and to sacrifice in many ways. Maybe you're in high school or college. I went to William & Mary, by the way. It's a great place. I like the school. Survived it, too. Um, maybe you're a young adult. Maybe you're in your first career, second career, third career. I don't know what career. And God is calling you. My one challenge to all of us today, myself included, might be that we might grow. Grow as Christ's ambassadors. Have you seen something in scripture today or has the Lord been working in your heart say, you know, I need to grow in the way I share the gospel. I need to grow in how I order my resources. I need to grow in how I reach out across the street or around the world. I need to grow in the way I pray or send or go. I need to grow in this team we call the church so that we might do the Lord's mission. And as we think of potential excuses, and I've got a thousand of them, whether it's about money or sacrifice or rejection or time or age or family or health, remember that one motivation that overcomes all obstacles. It's the need is great, yes. Japan needs to hear the gospel. The Middle East needs to hear the gospel. William and Mary and Williamsburg need to hear the gospel. The need is great, it's urgent. The message is amazing. There is no message like it in the universe. The messengers, except for the poles, some of them can be pretty cool. But none of that is the motivation. The motivation is Christ's love on us. And that's something that a new friend of ours, I believe, got. Stacy and I had lunch with a, a new friend uh, and his wife uh, a week and a half ago or so. And he shared that his, uh, he grew up in Japan as Japanese, and he heard the gospel, maybe the gospel or snippets of the gospel in Sunday school or in little ways as a kid through, I think, a Christian school, through an aunt who maybe was a Christian, something like that. Ten years later, when he was 16 and in high school, God changed his heart, and he became a believer. Ten years later. And he was excited. He was excited to share his faith. And he said, I, uh, I, I've got to tell people. But he had a target on his back. He was in an all-boys school. The only Christian, not in his class, not in his grade, in his school. The only believer. And he wanted to tell others about Christ. And he did. And uh, one of the people he wanted to tell was his best friend. He was on the uh, uh, judo team. And his best friend was the captain of the judo team. I wanted to tell him about his friends like, I don't want to see you in that crazy cult. I'm going to go to those meetings and drag you out if I have to. He actually got beat up like three or four times or more in high school for his faith. Um, years later, he's telling us, just a few years ago, he's like, hey, I'm sitting here, I'm, I'm planting a church. The Lord called me to be a church planter. I'm planting a church here in Japanese language church in Birmingham, Alabama. Ministering to expatriates, people coming for Honda and this and that and the other. And um, he's like, my, a friend who I haven't heard from in decades, decades, calls me up one morning and says, Pastor, yeah? He's like, uh, I live in Atlanta now with my wife, yeah? And I go to church every Sunday morning. And it was his friend from the judo team. He says, I just wanted you to know that Christ found me. I experienced his love through you. So I think that, sorry, new story, so I'm kind of like getting used to it. Um, I think this morning it's like 
Stories like that that remind us that the sacrifice is worth it, the weight is worth it, the time, the patience is worth it, but it's also urgent. He told people right there where he was and paid the price for it. Um, God does his work in his time and his way. And so um, my prayer for me and for us is that we would all grow as Christ's ambassadors because Christ's love compels us. Let's pray together. Dear Father God, we praise you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because you are fully sufficient in yourself and you didn't have to love us or save us. But you chose to out of love and grace. To save a people, a rebellious people like me, like us, for yourself. Given us that, that friendship, that reconciliation, that perfect record which is your sons and crediting it up to us and forgiving our sin, which is amazing. And Lord, giving us the privilege of, of raising your flag, of telling your story, of telling the truth that others might know you and love. Lord, make us bold, make us faithful. By your grace, forgive us when we fail. And help us to grow as your ambassadors, right here in Williamsburg, right here in this church, right here in our families, and uh, around the world, as you would call us by your grace, through your power. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.